please leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Thank you. Yeah, I I don't get the feeling that there are people out there, you know, pounding the table and saying McKenna is a danger to to society and is corrupting the youth and all that all of which is probably true I mean I hope it's I hope it's true but nobody's alarmed about it the dude who popularized the paleo diet Michael Pollan just wrote a book on psychedelics MDMA is now being used in psychotherapy to treat PTSD Ketamine is being used to help treat major depressive disorder, and my buddy's mom is thinking about eating mushrooms. Psychedelics are coming. And where did they come from? Dennis McKenna and his older brother Terrence McKenna did a bunch of psychedelics and wrote a book teaching people how to grow magic mushrooms. While Terrence was in the spotlight taking the mantle from Timothy Leary as a psychedelic popularizer promoting far out ideas like the stoned ape theory or the time wave idea, which I don't really understand. His younger brother, Dennis, focused more on the botany and ethnopharmacology of these strange plants. He wrote a memoir in 2012, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, and that brought him into the public eye. This is a three-part interview. Joey Peters, journalist from the Twin Cities, and I interviewed Dennis about drugs, Terrence, family trouble, and how mushrooms may have helped us develop language skills. Here is the theme song. Wait, one more thing. At the end of this episode, I'll tell you my crazy mushroom trip that was very intense and I saw the secret to the universe. Sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. Here's the theme song. Welcome to your eulogy, the podcast where I interview someone about their life so that we can talk about their death. Today is a special bit of a crossover episode. I am interviewing Dennis McKenna with the journalist Joey Peters. Um, Joey Peters, a previous guest, is a local Twin Cities reporter who has done multiple stories on drugs and their uses in treating a variety of conditions, from weed used for PTSD when he was reporting in New Mexico to treating depression with ketamine, now here in Minnesota. Dennis McKenna is an ethnopharmacologist and research pharmacologist for the Hefter Research Institute, in which he is a co-founder. He is also generally associated with psychedelics and their medical uses. In both of these intros, I've focused on the sensational topic of illicit drugs. In America, we have an odd relationship with drugs, both illicit and commonplace ones. And I'm hoping that with these two guests, we can help separate the sensationalism from these powerful but natural pharmacological tools. I could have read that sentence almost as a bit sarcastically, that last one. (laughs) And no offense, Joey, but Dennis deserves another intro. Dennis McKenna has played a major role in introducing psilocybin mushrooms into American culture and literally into America. 
from the now famous experiment at La Chorera to the book he co-authored with his brother Terence McKenna, Psilocybin, Magic Mushrooms, uh, Magic Mushrooms Grower's Guide. Any corrections? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess that's okay. It's actually Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide, not plural. Ah. That's the only... That's the only correction. Whew. Yeah. I, I always feel bad about bios and introductions anyway because we're always condensing people um, into a very strict um, uh, very strict identity. And so how, how do you feel represented? Or how, how do you think other people see you, Dennis? Well, I don't know. But to speak a minute to the to the you know to the profiles the bios i i i favor a shorter one usually and the one you gave is just about right usually it, it talks and so on people go on and on and on and i it's probably because i submit too long a bio you know <laughs> i have various bios but uh so that doesn't matter um how do people see me <sighs> Well, I don't know. I, I think people see me uh, in, a, in various ways. I think they see me as an, an advocate for psychedelics, which I am, uh, as an ethnopharmacologist, which I am and like to say I am. I think they see me as someone who balances or stands on the edge between science and spirituality, mm. which I think probably fits you know i uh i am a scientist but i think anyone who and i've been involved with the scientific study of psychedelics for years but i think anyone who works with these substances whoever uh, you know if if they look behind the curtain if they actually experience them then you can't really be a scientific reductionist anymore because it challenges what we know you know so in that sense people ask me how do you combine these two perspectives and well i just do you know it's kind of like it, it's kind of like the quantum thing you can view it as a particle or as a wave you have to you have to keep these same these sort of different perspectives in balance because neither the reductionist or the completely non-reductionist really uh is adequate maybe i see you in one way and you can tell me if you think it's accurate or not but in a way i see you as kind of a bridge uh between i guess the counterculture movement and the kind of proponents for psychedelics and the counterculture movement in the 60s to now where we have this more kind of professionalized uh um i guess mainstreamed um, community that that are proponents of psychedelics. Would you right. say that's accurate? Way to see you as a bridge between that. Yeah, I I guess so. You mean in the sense that I I've been around so long. I was part of the counterculture, and now I'm part of the respectable <laughs> psychedelic community. Well, yeah. I don't know if there is really a respectable psychedelic community, but there's. There's, it's, it's, I guess it's tending that way, you know, as psychedelics get accepted for use in medicine, you know, then they're losing their stigma in some ways. 
And, and that's a good thing because the, there's nothing useful about that. You know, this, is, this was all just misinformation. They are powerful. They're useful uh, for learning about consciousness. They're useful therapeutically, uh, you know, a, as personal practices. They're as, as valid and in some ways more effective or at least as effective as meditation or or any of these things and that's kind of where they're at now they're even being accepted by by biomedicine so when it it crosses that threshold you know you know you've really sort of in a new environment back in the day psychedelics were were stigmatized and marginalized a lot like the people that were using them. I mean, it was huh. it was inherently part of the counterculture, and to use a psychedelic was to make a social statement, you know, that you didn't buy into the bullshit that the culture pumps out all the time. It was to say, we're, we're you know, we don't buy that. You had a, a contemporary who, uh, Michael Tasig, um, has criticized you for applying Western science to psychedelics. Um, do you feel that there is a camp that people think that it's a completely different thing that shouldn't use this scientific paradigm of medical sciences? Well, um, I, I suppose there is, but I, I you know, I, I mean, my, Michael Tausig's criticisms of me, uh, you know, happened years ago at a at a conference in Bogota. I don't know, I don't know if he's ever said anything since, but I completely disagree with that. I think that science, I mean, I think that just because something is not within the Western tradition, that that means we should not use science to investigate it. Um, in if if the conference I'm thinking of, if I recall correctly, he was criticizing me for talking about the chemistry, the pharmacology, the botany, and so on of ayahuasca, and that that is a part of a complete understanding of ayahuasca. I think he's wrong to think that only the ethnographic aspect of it is worthy of study. Mm. I mean, it's inherently a multidisciplinary topic, and it has to do with plants and drugs and chemistry and pharmacology. You can't separate those things if you're yeah. going to talk about ayahuasca. One of the things that drives science is nothing is off the table. Science is potentially something that can ask questions about anything. That's its job, is to ask questions of nature and try to get an answers back that are meaningful. Um, if that offends somebody's sensibilities about the culture, I, I don't know what to say. It, too yeah. bad. I, you know? I understand that. <laughs> There's no intention to disrespect the culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love, throughout your career, you've always had such a, um, a love of plants and uh, and particularly, interestingly, your your idea of plant communication. Uh, you had a phrase where it was, um, 
instead of language plant, plants use bio um oh i can't remember the term but the biological processes do you communicate with with everything um signal transduction yes that, yeah yeah okay yeah, yeah. and it, it brings me to a topic that i think has kind of gone throughout your career which is that of language mm-hmm. um with psychedelic and psychedelic experiences it is often an ineffable experience, something you can't explain. But then language becomes a key way of understanding how plants act. And you also have, you, you talk about how the, the language part of the brain, the, the part of the frontal brain, frontal lobe that engages in language was one of the latest to evolve. And that can be coupled with a theory that um, your brother Terrence and you worked on about um, early humans ingesting mushrooms to help um, jumpstart the communicative uh, parts of the brain. And so, big question, but <laughs> reduced down, I see you lifting up language as a way of life existing and solving problems, both with plants and humans. But then we have something like psychedelics that is, you can't even talk about it because... Um, and I'll put on my um, academic hat and I'll, I'll quote um, Wittgenstein, the old philosopher, who said, once said something that I love, which was, what can, what can be said at all can be said clearly, and what we cannot talk about we must pass over in silence. Do you see the, the, the binary I'm setting up here? Mm-hmm. Um, what is your relationship with language as a way of seeing how life works? Well, um, yeah, you, you, you've covered several important points here. You know, we, we could talk about this for the rest of (laughs) the rest of the interview. You know, uh, uh, Terence's suggestion and and my own suggestion. I think it was more my idea that anyway, it doesn't matter. It's our idea, but uh, the idea that eating mushrooms was a trigger, a catalyst to cognitive evolution in a certain way uh, through synesthesia. That was that was my idea. I don't think Terence talked about this so much, but synesthesia is a uh, a crossing over of different sensory modalities. So that happens in psychedelics all the time. You can hear colors or you can see sounds. You know, that's probably the most trivial kind of synesthesia. And that goes on all the time in psychedelics. And what I'm saying is that in early hominids, this connection that was... No. Excuse me. Oh, no problem. I, I can't accept it, but, but I can't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Synesthesia. We? So we were talking about synesthesia, and that's something that that goes on in psychedelic. I mean, some people are genetically synesthetic. And this, this is just how they perceive the world. About 1% of people are actually genetically, spontaneously synesthetic. Yeah, like Pharrell, the musician. Yeah. I think he said yeah. he was. Uh, and 
but in under psychedelics you can synesthesia is a very common experience and and what the idea was that psychedelics let you see that fundamental relation between image and sound and meaning right we construct a reality and we live inside of that and it's a reality largely made out of language out of our our concepts and psychedelics could have been a catalyst that enabled us to connect you know essentially meaningless sounds and meaningless images with meaningful symbols so in that sense it helped us to construct this this world of cognition based on language that we that we inhabit and it was an important and so language to engage in language is to engage in synesthesia without even thinking about it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we don't usually think we're having a synesthetic experience, but chances are when I utter these inherently meaningless small mouth noises... I'm getting a visual... You're image. getting a visual representation of what I'm saying, right? So yeah. that's a kind of synesthesia. Yeah, that's wild. And so, that's a learned skill, and that's what psychedelics taught us or taught our ancestors to do and it's kind of like once that was understood once that was learned then language and you know it's a necessary first step toward constructing this model of the world that we inhabit you that's, know and yeah that's really um convincing i i'd kind of read little bits of that idea before and i was, I was like oh interesting idea but I, that's a beautiful way of putting it do you think um, what's the downside of that? Do you think that because it was so effective, the way that we communicate and visualize things through language, do you think we over-rely on it that keeps us from being able to communicate greater experiences such as ones that are psychedelic or uh, religious? Or Yeah, I think, uh, yes, I think that there are, uh, um, you know, there are limitations to what can be stated with language. And, uh, psychedelics are a good example or religious transcendent experiences are a good example they're inherently or, or they're ineffable they cannot be expressed by definition almost they can't be expressed and yet when you have a psychedelic experience or a religious experience the natural impulse is to talk about it mm -hmm. and try and explain it to yourself and other people, you smoke DMT, and for example, and you come down from DMT, and it's like, oh my God, what happened? And it's, you know, and then this happened, and this happened, and so on. But in the act of talking about it, you diminish it, and it's almost like uh, a a self protective strategy, a way for you to get reintegrated into your world of cognition your world of language because you've just blown it to pieces and we do this all the time i mean this this is this is one example but you've heard of the default mode network right i i haven't yeah well the default mode network is kind of the the uh the the buzzword these days of just like go if you pay attention to everything, it would be like overwhelming. So you have a default mode to navigate. You have a default mode. Yeah, you have a default mode to uh, 
navigate through the world. Mm -hmm. And it's made up of your sensory neural information that comes through your, you know, various portals. Uh, A lot of what the default mode network does is it filters things out. You know, there's a, a something called neural gating, and you know the neural gates are usually high, and what gets through is stuff that is immediately relevant. Yeah. You know, and if the if the saber tooth tiger is coming after you, you want your attention to be on the saber tooth tiger, right? <laughs> Not the trees in the background or you know what's going on over here. Psychedelics deliberately uh, to take a psychedelic is to deliberately disable that default mode network for a time, including the whole linguistic interface where you just apprehend inside and outside and these terms don't even they're not even accurate but you just apprehend without that linguistic filter this default mode network and it's you know that's a phrase that robin carhart harris has has devised to explain what happened i used to have a more colorful phrase for it and i still use it which is called the reality hallucination And we are, we live in a hallucination. We construct a model of reality that is based on our sensory neural input, what we do with that information internally, how we process it, interpret it, associate it with memories, associate it with other forms of, uh, you know, things that we think we know. We construct this model of the world. That's what we inhabit. The real world is unknowable yeah it's out there somewhere but that that's well inaccessible in the raw form right i mean we wouldn't understand that it doesn't look anything like this model world if you believe the physicists you know it's all (laughs) vibrations and that sort of thing so the 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 reality hallucination is very useful because it creates a map of the world that we can then navigate. Yeah, yeah. I want to get back to this uh, when we're talking about synesthesia. Yes. And um, psychedelics, the theory of psychedelics being a catalyst. Um, is there any like hard evidence we can point to of that being true? Or any hard evidence? Or is it, I guess, like, is it mostly a theory or hard evidence, like, using science that we can point to to say, like, psychedelics were a catalyst in language development? Uh, Well, no. I mean, what would the, the question is, what would constitute hard evidence? I don't know. Maybe some looking at bones of ancestors and finding <laughs> some sort of <laughs> you know that they took psychedelics i guess the well, point yeah, like brain size difference right there's the big leap um well there's brain size difference right and and as the brain increased in size it basically tripled in size over a couple million years mm. which is a very short time 
And a lot of the newer neural structures are devoted to language. You know, the generation of language and the comprehension of language, that's all neocortical stuff, you know. So something triggered that. Was it psychedelics? I, I, I think it's naive and simplistic to say, People took mushrooms and suddenly they got smart. I don't mm -hmm. think it's that simple, <laughs> you know, uh, but you've got epigenetics involved. It's hard to postulate a conventional, you know, genetic mechanism, but epigenetics is important. And, um, uh, I, you know, I think that language is one of those things we had to it was a learned skill, and once we had it, it became very useful because it enabled people to work together in groups and plan, and it 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 underlies the ability. I don't think animals do this. I don't think even primates do it, but it, it underlies the ability to imagine something, yeah. visualize something, and then actually create that thing out in the physical world like a piece of art or something. Um, I have, I think it's a question, so I'll coach it like this. So um, Epicurus, the leader or the name attached to Epicureanism, the old, um, old Greek school of philosophy, often people think it means to eat as much as you want, but it's, it's actually more about like stoicism and, right. uh, and balance. Right. Um, I remember he died from a... A kidney stone. It was, it was a real painful death. Wow. And this is a, um, this is just a, um, a pretentious way of me um, bringing up uh, your brother. And when he died, because he had a very, um, I don't know what word to use, uncomfortable <laughs> final years. Do you feel that the beliefs and the philosophy that you, um, have embraced um, through understanding the universe through psychedelics and everything like that. Um, do you think it helps you as you age? Do you think it helped your brother as he did? Or when the body started to decay, it, it um, I don't know. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think a person can answer that really honestly until the moment of your death comes. You know, I think that we would like to think, and I and and Terence, I'm pretty sure felt this way, that taking psychedelics prepares you for death. You know, because in in a lot of ways, particularly things like DMT or 5-methoxy DMT, they're kind of a dress rehearsal for death you know, for crossing that threshold, the only difference being you come back. Mm. But we know at some point you're going to cross that threshold and you won't come back. You'll be there or you won't be there. Maybe you don't exist, you know. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if there's life after death. Um, but there is certainly events that happen as you die that that uh, are similar to an intense psychedelic experience like DMT. But I've never died. <laughs> <laughs> but what Not about yet, so I can't really say. And I... nobody who hasn't died can really <laughs> say, you know. What what about the the day to day 
discomforts of of a human body. So when when um, Terence was dying, um, did you feel that everything you had studied connected to that, applied to that, or was it just like too heartbreaking that it was just like you know what, this is just something something new that that you mean for the people around him? Yeah. Well, it was it was pretty. It was pretty dismaying, you know, to see him gradually lose, you know, all his faculties. And there was a stage about three weeks before he died when I think what happened is he had a stroke and maybe nobody knew it. But mm. there was a point where he was unable to speak and unable to move and all that. And of course, then at that point, you're beyond the point when where you can actually ask somebody what's happening. You know, where are you? Because they can't answer. He seemed very stoic about it all. You know, um, I mean, we offered him every conceivable drug, psychedelics, and not, and he actually didn't want to take psychedelics at that point. He didn't even smoke cannabis, which really surprised me, <laughs> you know? And it was almost like, I don't know whether that was some something about him where he just made a decision. He wanted to face it on the natch without the help of any pharmacological agents, including pain relievers. And he had all kinds of pain relievers available, which he used, but as he got closer and closer to dying, I think he used them less and less. And and I'm not sure that the, you know, the kind of cancer that he had uh, may not have been a particularly painful type thing. It's just, I mean, it was working in his brain and so on, but it wasn't clear it was causing a lot of pain. Mm. You know, I couldn't tell from his behavior if it was, you know, um, so again, it's it's a it's a tough tough question to answer. Um, tough question to answer. Thank you for listening. This was the first part of a three-part episode of my interview with Dennis McKenna. I should say my interview with Joey Peters. If you have any questions, please, please email, email me at youreulogymail at gmail.com. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. I will see you, see you next, next week. week. And, uh, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> okay, and as promised, here's my mushroom trip. Here's one more thing. I didn't include it in the interview because um, I, of time constraints. But Dennis talks about set, setting, and dosage. These are three things important if you want to do psychedelics. Uh, one has to do with your mental state. One has to do with where you do them. And one has to do with how many drugs you do. Uh, as a little example of this, I will tell you the craziest trip I ever had. And I've only done mushrooms like twice. But one of them, I was hungover. I was massively depressed because I couldn't stop drinking. I had a drinking problem. And so I did these mushrooms and I wasn't in a good place for it. And I had a very bad trip and it was terrifying. But it actually was kind of beautiful though because I did really get lost in the cosmos, so to speak. Like literally I was laying on my floor, but like I was envisioning flying through the cosmos and some weird, really visceral ideas of like, 
human bodies being connected with nature and I kind of like was hallucinating seeing like a body that was a a male female plant creature that was giving birth to a human and that was freaky and my favorite part was I was I, I would close my eyes and I would just see geometric shapes and I thought that that was space and so I was watching space and I was in the cosmos and all these geometric shapes were just flying around and they were getting more and more ordered until I finally realized that I was looking at the secret of the universe the, the basic mathematic principles that lay out how the universe is and I saw them all line up and for a moment I was like this is the, the secret of the universe and then a moment later I was so sad and, and let down because I realized that the secret of the universe was incredibly boring geometry <laughs> and there was nothing that cool about it so that was a failure of set and setting <laughs> don't do uh, mushrooms when you're depressed and hungover and yeah so set setting and dosing uh, be in a good mental state be in a safe space don't be driving or doing them in an area where you could walk into traffic or whatever and don't do too much if you're not ready for it Thank you.